for the next, I don't know, maybe handful of weeks, five, six weeks, something like that, uh, we're going to be uh, doing a, a, a mini-series through the book of Esther. And I'm not going to be teaching this series. I'm going to teach a preliminary introductory lesson today to kind of give a full overview and scope of the book of Esther, the time it was written in, the main characters in the book. And then I'm going to have uh, one of the men of the church actually teach the rest of those lessons. And um, the prayer is that it'll be a challenge and an encouragement uh, to you as well. Um, there's a lot of wonderful truth in the story of Esther and a person who had to basically completely submit themselves to God and his care. Like it was either submit to the Lord and let God do something or, you know, the life is over. And what a challenge, what a challenge that is, a full surrender uh, to the Lord. And there's several other great principles that emerge out of the book of Esther. And so, I don't know, like I said, for the next five weeks, maybe or so, uh, there'll be a, a series through the book and, and one of the men of the church will teach it. Um, and I'm just going to do the preliminary lesson today. But, uh, and I suppose there's a couple of weeks in there too where we'll take a break. Uh, Pastor McCandless will be here for our family camp. And then Brother Scott Kuzel will be here the Sunday after that, June 5th, I believe it is. And he'll be speaking all day uh, that Sunday. It'll be good to see him. Um, I just was able to see him when I was gone. That was a great reunion, but it'll be good for you, the church, to be able to hear from him and see what the Lord has done uh, on their last, before they head back uh, to South Africa. And he'll report on what the Lord had done through them and with them um, in their last uh, uh, time period over there before they went on furlough. So you'll, you'll be encouraged by that. And so that's going to happen mixed in there as well. And so maybe this series will go through uh, even into July or, or the end of June or something like that. But just wanted to give you an idea of where we're going. If you look in Esther, um, chapter 1, let me get myself there. Esther chapter 1, I'm going to read a good portion of this. Uh, in fact, we'll just read the entire chapter. And then what I want to do is just kind of give some background and some introduction. And that's, that's what the lesson is going to be today. And then at the end of it, we'll, we'll make an application uh, for us as well. And so I want to lay some foundation work that will help, help us uh, as the series goes on to be able to see the whole picture, the big picture in the context of it all. Okay. So Esther chapter 1, follow along and read this entire chapter. Uh, together, and you just follow along as I read. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, 
and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and four score days. So get the picture there. They're basically having a party for six months. Six months there, he's showing the riches of his kingdom to all of the nobles and all of the princes. Talk about being self-absorbed, right? Um, there's some interesting things about this guy uh, that historically uh, that, that were uncovered, and I'll share some of that with you in a minute. Uh, but we read over stuff like that, and it's like you don't, you don't really grab all that. That's actually saying a lot uh, in those words, if you get a little background. Anyway, he's got this grand party going on. Verse 5 says, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So their six-month party is over, and now he makes another party for seven days for all the people. Okay? So the first party was for the elites. The second party is for all the people. All right, you follow that? Got that? Okay, good. Whether you don't do or don't, follow along anyway, okay? Verse 6 says, where, uh, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the, son, uh, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now you have to understand culture here. Um, whatever the king said needed to be done. If you don't do that, you're going to lose your head. So this was, this was a real big deal. They had just had these parties for six months, then they had this party for all the people, and Vashti has a party for the, late, for the women of the court, and it's sort of like this grand finale to it all. The king says, I'm going to have my wife come in and parade around like this, like uh, to, to kind of cap off uh, showing off all the grandness and the grandeur of my kingdom and her beauty and all of that. How would you feel about that? Right? Well, she said no. <laughs> well, that was going to mean something. So we get down to verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all the, that knew law and judgment. And the, and the next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admartha, Tarshish, Merez, Mersena, um, Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face, which sat uh, the first in the kingdom. 
What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mimukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. All of these people are full of themselves in this, in this portion of scripture here. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall, all, shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate to unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimukin. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now, we're going to work our way in these lessons through the book, and we're not going to go you know, chapter by chapter, uh, certainly, but there'll be principles that we draw out. But today, what we're going to do is we're just going to look uh, at some um, basic introductory things, like the time of this book, when was it written, and then we're going to look at the main characters of this book, and then we'll make an application toward the end. But first, let's consider the time of the book of Esther. Um, does anybody know the time period in which the book of Esther was written already? You know how your Bible uh, lays out the order of the books of the Bible? And there's uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? Actually, all three of those books are tied together, uh, and they're tied together in, in a sequence of the nation of Israel returning back from Babylonian captivity, okay? And they all have a different focus to them, but they're all tied to the same thing. The book of Esther actually takes place following the 70-year Babylonian captivity of the nation of Israel. In 586 B.C., uh, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians uh, at that time, and that, the reason for that was because Israel had rejected God. Israel had turned their back on God, uh, and God wanted to rule over them, uh, but they said, we don't want God's rule. And this is, the, this is the cycle. This is the cycle of the nation of Israel. God was their God. They worshiped Him. They went in rebellion and rejected God. God would send judgment on the nation of Israel, which would then turn their heart back to Him. They would repent, and God would restore them again, and then the cycle would start all over again. God was their God, but then they would reject God, rebel against Him. God would judge them, 
and bring, uh, bring judgment upon them, which would then turn their heart into repentance toward God, and God would then restore them again. That is the cycle of the nation of Israel. Well, the reason they went into Babylonian captivity was because they had turned their back on God. So in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. God judges the nation of Israel. At the time, many of the Jews were transported to Babylon where they were to assimilate into the people of Babylon. And you know that some of those young Jewish men, the ones that, had, that seemed to have some sort of uh, abilities to them, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, remember them? Uh, they, they were choice young men. And there was many like that uh, uh, who were, were transported back to Babylon and they became leaders in the nation of Babylon. Among them, like I said, was Daniel, which, by the way, I'm certain, uh, at least in, in the studies I've done in my, my own thinking, I'm certain that, that the reason that the wise men that came from the East at, at Jesus' birth, the reason why they knew they were looking for uh, the Lord, the Savior, had to be because of Daniel's influence. In Babylon. Uh, they were, it's more than likely that that's where they came from. And, and Daniel's influence, no doubt, had a big part to play in, in how they knew what they were looking for. Um, that's just a side note. But then in 539 BC, the king of Persia overthrows Babylon. Okay? Uh, and how did he do that? Well, the Bible tells us, and history also tells us actually, uh, that he did that by damming up the rivers that went under the walls into the city, and they went secretly under the walls through the dry riverbeds into the city to destroy it and overthrow it. Now, understand something. That's a major, major feat, because up to this time, up to the time of the overthrow of Babylon, it was, that city was thought of as a city that could not be conquered, a city that was impenetrable, it, you could not defeat it, you could not siege it, you could not destroy it. And the reason was is because the walls of that city were at least 30 feet high, and they were 80 feet wide, and they were 60 miles around the entire city. It was massive. Massive. And this city was well fortified, it was well protected, and Babylon was a self-sufficient city that, could, that they could grow their own food uh, within their walls. Water ran under the gates. It was an endless supply. Uh, they could easily provide for all that they needed. And so even, even a, 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 a siege on the city wouldn't affect them because they could go about their business for years, even if an invading army was outside of their gates. It was thought to be uh, impenetrable. It was thought to be a city that could not be conquered. Um, in fact, the very night that Babylon fell, there was actually a big party going on in the palace. And there was no concern with the armies of the Persians that were outside their walls and had been there for a number of months even. You can read about it. Now, let's just do a little looking. Go over to Daniel chapter 5, okay? Let's keep your place here and look in Daniel chapter 5. 
Daniel 5, in verse 1, the Bible says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now skip to verse 24 of Daniel 5. So there's a big party going on here, and verse 24 says, Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meeny, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tickle, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So here we find the fall of Babylon. Uh, Isaiah actually prophesied of the great overthrow of Babylon. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians. Isaiah 13 and verse 1, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Now skip to verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver as, uh, and as for gold. They shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. The Babylon And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabians pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. If you go over to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah gives us a bit of a key as to how the city of Babylon, this great walled city, though thought to be invincible, would actually be conquered. Jeremiah chapter 51. 
Jeremiah 51 and verse 24. And I will render unto Babylon and to all the inhabitants of, the Chalde- of, of Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroys all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. And they shall not take of thee a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundation, but thou shalt be desolate forever, saith the Lord. Set ye up a standard in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call together against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a captain against her. Cause the horses to come up as a rough caterpillars. Prepare against her the nations with the kings of the Medes, the captains thereof, and all the rulers thereof, and all the land of his dominion. And the land shall tremble and sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without an inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have forborne to fight. They have remained in their holds. Their might hath failed. They became as women. They have burned her dwelling places. Her bars are broken. One post shall run to meet another, and one messenger to meet another, to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken at one end, and that the passages are stopped, and the reeds they have burned with fire, and the men of war are affrighted. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her, yet a little while, and the time of her harvest shall come." So Jeremiah gives us a little bit of insight as to how this great walled city, though thought to be invincible, was actually conquered. Verse 31 implies that the the city's fall was very rapid. And the Bible says there in verse 31 that one post uh, would ride and uh, and he would meet uh, another post, maybe from the east and then from the west. Those Those are messengers. And one would ride and would meet the other one, and uh, they would both say to the, the same thing, uh, that the city's being invaded, so from one end to the other. Verse 32 uh, implies, it says, the passages were stopped. And Roman historians uh, tell us that, that, that King Cyrus dammed up the rivers, allowing the army to go into the city under the walls in the dry riverbed because they had stopped up the rivers. No way to penetrate otherwise. Cyrus, king of Persia, from what we know after the fall of Babylon, when the Persians uh, conquered and took over, the policy of Cyrus, king of Persia, was to take or allow all of those exiled Jews, the ones that the Babylonians had taken captive and and took back to Babylon, his policy was to let those exiled Jews return to their home. All right, is everybody following this, where we're at in the story? Okay, so the the Babylonians had captured the Jews. Uh, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. The king of Persia allowed the exiles in Babylon to return to their homeland. The Jews returned in three different waves to their homeland. The first return of the Jews was under Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. The second wave was to rebuild the temple under Ezra in 458 
B.C. And then the third return was under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city that lay in heaps. And so uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all tied to the return of the Jews from Babylon back to their homeland. So the book of Esther takes place between the first and the second return of the nation of Israel. All right, is everybody following that? That's where the book of Esther falls in. And the story of Esther fits right there between the first return from captivity led by Zerubbabel and the second return led by Ezra. And you actually can pinpoint down the events of the book of Esther. They actually occur between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. And so all of these are connected together. But now when Cyrus, the king of Persia, permitted the Jews to return home, thousands of them, and, and there's different accounts as to maybe how many, but possibly even a million Jews actually stayed in Persia and didn't go back to their homeland. And, and so you've got the people that are scattered, that are, are split, that are spread. The book of Ezra deals with restoration. The book of Nehemiah deals with reconstruction. The book of Esther deals with preservation, the preservation of the people of God. And you'll see that as we walk through the book of Esther, how God used her to preserve an entire uh, people group, the Jews. <clears throat> and so that's the time setting of the book. So now let's consider some of the main characters of the book. All right? Chapter 1, go back to Esther. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of, of insight into where all of this fits. And it's good for context. Chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is a Hazuiris which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia. The first main character of the book is, is the king. King Ahasuerus. It's a funny name to say. If you laugh at it, I just want you to have to say it over and over and over and over again. And then I will laugh at you. Okay? Then we'll be even. It'll be good. Um, who is this guy? Is the question. Right? Up until recent times, the identity of this king was actually a mystery. And, and Bible critics try to discredit the Bible because this guy is not known in history up until recently. Let me just read for you an excerpt from um, a book that was written by a man named J. Sidlow Baxter. The book is Explore the Book. Uh, that's what it's called. Um, but it states this, the laurel for the first identifying of Ahasuerus as Xerxes goes to a man named George Grottenfend, who, when he was a young student at the University of Göttingen, uh, set himself patiently to decipher the curious wedge-shaped Persian characters which had been found on inscriptions among the ruins of the ancient Persian city Persepolis. The name of the son of Darius was deciphered as, I can't even pronounce this word, 
But when you translate this word into Greek, it is the name Xerxes, and which, when translated into Hebrew, is practically letter for letter the English word Ahasuerus. And so there's inscriptions from archaeological findings that identify who this guy is, and it's actually Xerxes. Ahasuerus is known to us outside of the Bible in historical accounts as Xerxes, which the Greek is the Greek form of his Persian name. And this Xerxes reigned over the Persian Empire from 485 to 465 BC. Perfect, perfect time frame. Now, a little bit about this king, Ahasuerus. I started to tell you a little that he was quite the character. Um, there's some historical things about him that show that this guy had these super extreme personalities. Like he would, he was, he would make a, a decision here and then at some point would just completely flip and go a hundred miles an hour the other direction. And very extreme in his responses, very extreme in his actions. Um, I'll just give you one, for example. Uh, Herodotus, which is a historian, tells us that among the myriads gathered for the expedition against Greece, Ahasuerus was the fairest in personal beauty and stately bearing. That kind of fits in with what we read in chapter 1, how he wanted to show his beauty and show his riches of his kingdom and so on. Okay, But morally, he was a mixture of passionate extremes. He is just the despot to dethrone Queen Vashti for refusing to expose herself before his tipsy guests. He is just the one to consign a people like the Jews to be massacred and then to swing over to the opposite extreme of sanctioning Jewish vengeance on thousands of his other subjects. And if you follow the story, what happened? He went along with uh, with, with Haman's plot, he went along with the idea to exterminate the Jews, but then when he saw and recognized what was actually going on, uh, completely went the other direction to say that anybody who touches them should be killed themselves, right? Well, there's a lot of other things that history tells us about this guy. Uh, he, morally, he was, um, yeah, he, there was a lot of things, and he just understand that he was a very extreme person in his personality. And that highlight is highlighted for us in chapter 1 as he's having a six-month grand party to show off the riches of his kingdom and so on. He seems to be a man of brilliance, but he was subject to uh, fits of immaturity and his temper and his mood swings and all of the above. So, that explains a little bit about some of the things that you read. Well, then you get to verse 11, and we find there's a queen, Queen Vashti. The Bible says to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. For six months, when we read in verse 4 that there was feasting with the nobles, of, uh, from the king to show off his great empire and so on. And 
it's possible that they were making preparations to go to war against Greece during this time. But for six months, the king had been feasting with the nobles about his great empire. Then after those 180 days, he makes a feast to all the people. Verse 5 tells us that. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. While the men were being entertained by the king, the women had their own celebration with Queen Vashti as their hostess. Verse 9 tells us that. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. At the end of those seven days, that banquet is drawing to a close. A lot of alcohol had been flowing through there. The Bible talks about that over that previous week. A lot of that was going on, and the text tells us that the king had his share of it as well. Verse 10 says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. It was on this day when the king's heart was merry with wine that he sent for Vashti to appear before the men who had gathered with him. Verse 10 tells us who these men are. Verse 11 says that he commanded them to bring Vashti to, to the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. And how, I don't know exactly what we make of all of that other than to, to get the sense that this was his grand finale to all of this feasting and all of the celebration that was going on. Um, from what we're told, she was not instructed with regard to her dress other than she was to be appearing wearing the royal crown. She summoned to display her royal beauty, not to entertain the people uh, per se, uh, but, but to demonstrate and show off uh, the riches and the glorious kingdom of King Ahasuerus and to honor his excellent majesty. Look at verse 4, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of His Excellent Majesty many days. And so, what we find here is that the king wasn't asking. The king was summon, summoning her. And in that culture, like I said, um, if you didn't do what the king said, and if you didn't do what the king commanded, um, and you reject the king, there's going to be serious consequence. And so she decides that she's not going to come. She's not going to be paraded in front of all of these people to bring glory to the king. She rejects his summons. And then the Bible tells us that the king is going to begin a search for a new queen that will end uh, in Vashti being replaced by Esther. So look in chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servant that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. 
I was thinking about that verse. I'm like, you know, with his extremes, the Bible says that when his wrath was appeased, that he remembered Vashti, he remembered what she had done, he remembered what he decreed against her. I wonder if he was regretting that at this point, right? And he was going to go the other extreme now and maybe want to reverse all of that. But then the king's servants stepped in. The king's servants that ministered unto him um, said, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. So they step in and they're like, hey, uh, we need to do something about this. And so they give this idea to the king to search the land. And that brings us to Esther herself. The, besides the Lord, maybe the main character of the book of Esther. Among all of the women that were gathered, and we, you might call them contestants in a beauty pageant almost, that's kind of what it seemed like, but among them all was a beautiful young Jewess whose Hebrew name was Hadassah, whose Persian name was Esther. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her Persian name was Esther. Uh, the derivation of the name Esther is, di is disputed. Uh, the, the Hebrew name Hadassah means myrtle. Esther probably came from the Persian name, which comes from either a Babylonian goddess Ishtar or from, uh, from the Persian Sitar uh, uh, or star. The Persian name is Esther. That is actually important, I believe, because it, I think it allowed Esther to keep her identity secret, her nationality secret of who she was, that she was actually a Jew. It enabled her to keep that a secret. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible says Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And so we find that uh, Esther enters the scene here. Now, the only qualities that are actually mentioned regarding Esther are physical. There's nothing that's, that is talked about specifically about her character, but we do find a lot concerning her character in what she ended up doing. And it tells us a lot about the kind of young lady that she was. But from what is mentioned here regarding her, the qualities are only physical. She was beautiful to look at. She was beautiful in form and face. Verse 7 tells us that um, yeah, in verse 7, the middle part, and the maid was fair and beautiful. That was the, really the requirement, too, mostly from, uh, from uh, who the king was looking for. 
Now, we also understand and know that Esther was an orphan. When both of her parents had died, her cousin Mordecai took her and raised her as his own daughter. Look in chapter 2 and verse 5. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we know that she was an orphan. Mordecai took her to raise her as his own daughter. Both Esther and Mordecai were from the tribe of Benjamin, the Bible says. They were the descendants of Kish. They were deported from Jerusalem during the captivity with Jeconiah in 597 B.C. Um, and so that's what we know about Esther as an overview. And of course, we're going to dive into a lot more through the chapters of what takes place. But another character comes to light here, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai is mentioned in these verses. This is Esther's older cousin who raised her. He himself was some kind of an official in the king's palace. Did you notice in verses 5 through 7, the Bible says that Mordecai was carried away, in verse 6, Mordecai was carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai was some sort of an official in the king's court, and he was carried away with Jeconiah the king. And we don't know exactly what it was that he did, but we know that he was some sort of an official. Now, later on, we're going to find that, the, that God put Mordecai in the just the right place at just the right time to hear a story about something that's going on, which then the Lord then used to uh, translate that into basically the preservation of His people. God's hand is all over all of this. Now, what's interesting is that when we talk about God being a character in this story, you will never find the name of God mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet, he is the prevailing overall character in all of the book because his hand is so evident and so prevalent through the entire book. Now, before we talk more about some of those things, let's just mention one more character, Haman. Haman's another major player in the book of Esther. A man who enters the scene, but what's interesting, and maybe you, maybe you, don't, uh, you don't really know this, because it doesn't seem to be something that is, you know, real highlighted. But Haman doesn't actually come on the scene until probably five years after the fact. And I'll, I'll show that to you in a second. Five years after Esther becoming queen. At, any po at some point, uh, he came on the scene and he rose to 
some sort of favor with the king, and he became one of the chief rulers in the kingdom. The king even commanded that all the people should bow their knee to Haman when he came through because of his stately position in the king's court. And so it was a command that people would bow when they, the knee when they saw Haman. But there was one guy who refused to bow the knee to Haman, and it was Mordecai the Jew. The Persians, according to some historians, regard their king as the very image of God. And so not only was he royalty, he was deity. And they should bow. But Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman or any other man because his reverence only belonged to the one true God, his God whom he believed, Jehovah. All right? And again, even though the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, we find that his hand is found everywhere in the book of Esther. So I want to talk to you just for the rest of the last three minutes that we have about the theme, the theme of the book. What is the theme of the book of Esther? What is the purpose of the book of Esther? The purpose of the book is to demonstrate God's providential care for His people. The word providence comes from the Latin word providio, pro meaning before, Video, meaning to see. So in other words, God sees before all of the other things that happen, all of the moves of men, God sees beforehand. And God takes action in this situation to stop the maneuvering of men that would ultimately, uh, honestly, it would ultimately defeat the purpose of God through the nation of Israel. It would defeat the purpose of God for the salvation of men. If this evil plot and plan was followed through and carried out, God saw before, and God's will and God's plan was not going to be disrupted. Men empowered by Satan endeavor to destroy the Jewish nation. But God was way ahead of them. The providence, God seeing before. The providence of God to take care of His people. And we know that God has always maintained a remnant of Jews, even though they turn their back on Him, even though He brings judgment to them. God's always maintained a remnant of the Jews. He brought them out of Egyptian oppression and bondage. He brought them through the Babylonian captivity. He brought them through the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He brought them through the mass slaughter of Hitler in the 1940s. God always has maintained a remnant of Jews because God's not done with them. God has a purpose and a plan for them still. And there hasn't been a people who've been as attacked as the Jews over the centuries, over history. There's not been a people uh, who have remained uh, with their language and their nationality intact, even though they've been so oppressed, even during a time when they had no land to call their own or to call their nation. God brought them again together. It's all the providence of God, the protection of God. 
as God saw the coming need and provided for that need to His children in the Persian Empire, the principle or the point that, draw, that we draw out of that is just as God did that for the nation of Israel, God does that for me and you as well. God's providence. God provides. God foresaw our great need of a Savior. God provided the plan of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that in several places. The Bible also tells us that this is God's character. This is who He is. And the Bible also tells us then that if God is able to see and God provides for His people, that we can trust Him. And what should we do in that time? Well, Philippians 4.19, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 5.7 rather, says that we ought to cast our care upon Him for He cares for us. If we read in the book of Luke, and we'll finish up with this, go over to Luke, one last verse, and we'll be done. Luke chapter 11, and look at verse 9. Luke chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus says this, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that seeketh, or asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will ye give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish uh, uh, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? This gives us a little insight into the heart of God toward you and me. And the main purpose and the main theme of the book of Esther is the providence of God to care for His people. Let's not miss that as we walk through this series. The application is God provides for you and me as well we can trust Him. Even when we don't see what's going on, we can trust Him. Amen? God's good. He's always good, and He's good all the time. Amen? All right, you're dismissed. Thank you.